0: I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at Pilsen I-Ninety Four
1: on Lumpen Radio.
2: And once again, welcome to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpin' Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jimmy. And Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. Hey, and today we're getting a little delayed start. As you may know, there's some uh, pretty severe weather in the Chicago area. It's kind of cold out there, and we're moving a little slowly. But we are joined today through the magic of the telephone line by the author, Steph Cha, who has written the book, Your House Will Pay, and some other books as well, I believe. And she is joining us live from Los Angeles. Steph, how are you doing? this morning?
3: Hi, I'm doing great. Awesome. Nice to
2: be here. Awesome. Thank you so much for getting up uh, early in Los Angeles to talk to us uh,
4: about your book. We really appreciate it.
3: Oh, yeah, of course.
4: What's the temperature out there, Steph? It's oh, uh, don't, 10 degrees no, here. Don't, don't, Just, don't even start there. Yeah, no. No.
3: You know, I haven't been outside yet, but I think it's very cold probably somewhere in the Somewhere
2: in the 50s. Oh, (laughs) yeah, that's cold. Yeah, yeah, it's real cold, Steph. Thanks a lot for rubbing it in. Um, Steph, this uh, this isn't your first book. You've actually written a bunch of uh, crime novels, as I recall, correct? Yeah, this is my fourth. I
3: have three in a series that uh, came out in... 2013, 2014, and 2015.
2: That's awesome. You know, actually, I have a special interest in crime fiction. I'm the only person on this show I think that really reads uh, modern crime fiction. My mom has written about 30 books with uh, a detective as well. Um, She works with Mysterious Press. So I have a soft spot for people who who write crime fiction. So thanks again for coming on the show and talking to us about this.
4: I read crime fiction.
2: You do? Well, you look for a library, man. You don't count. Okay. It's true. (laughs) So, Steph, this is a... Your House Will Pay has come out um, and it's... I'm going to summarize it a little bit, and you can tell me if I'm wildly off-base, but you're telling the story of two groups of people, uh, Korean Americans, uh, black Americans, and it's largely uh, a riff on some of the things that are going on today with confrontations between uh, groups like the Proud Boys and Antifa, but also the Rodney King riots in L.A. of of 1992, if my memory serves me correct. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why this was a fertile subject for you as a novelist?
3: Yeah, um well I became interested in uh writing about uh the early 90s in Los Angeles because um uh, you know I'm Korean American and I grew up in LA and that time period has always been kind of salient to me. I was a kid um wh- when the, when uh the Rod- when the Rodney King beating happened and uh, when the rioting happened a year later. Um so I wasn't that aware of it at the time. I was I was 5 and 6 years old in 91 and 92. Um but I I I I think that was a period when um, the Korean American community in Los Angeles and um, became nationally salient, and that that's not something that usually happens. And certainly, you know, even even in, over the last thirty years, you know, there haven't been a lot of oca- occasions where Asian Americans as as a group are kind of centered in the conversation around racial politics in the U.S., which generally tend to code black and white. Um, and so I was interested in writing about that time for that reason, um, you know, and also because it's focused so much on L.A. And when I started doing research for the book, you know, I was kind of, I was looking at the uh, Latasha Harlins murder of 1991, um, I <coughs> saw all the, I, I saw all the direct connections between um, L.A. then and the U.S. more broadly now. Um, you know, it, it all just felt very much like I wasn't reading or thinking about history. It seemed like all these issues are very much alive. You know, reading about Rodney King at a time when, uh, when uh, you know, I, I started working on this book in um, late 2014, uh, which was after Michael Brown was killed, and um, and there was there was the rioting in Ferguson. Uh, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, it all just felt like part of the same story. Um, And so I wanted to write this contemporary novel with deep roots in the early 90s um, just to look at the way that we have processed our own history and, um, you know, haven't really gotten past it in in a meaningful way.
2: Yeah, and I mean, here in Chicago, of course, we had the Laquan McDonald case, yeah uh, where you know an officer actually did go to jail for murder for that which was a rare and that
3: was a yeah and that was that <clears throat> was a huge moment because um you know that that, that was um a few years ago right
2: uh, yeah it wasn't yes. van dyke is just uh, he's actually just started to serve his sentence yeah, now the and sentencing
4: that was, was just last year yeah it
2: was just last year so uh and but he only got 5 years i believe right for for murder isn't that correct
4: well it wasn't murder it, well i mean it was uh not First degree, murder. correct. Yeah, it was second manslaughter man in the second degree because you yeah. have to be premeditated. Yeah,
2: in Chicago, right? I'm, yeah. Not,
4: I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying. <clears throat> yeah, to.
2: that was that. And he pled. So, um, but what one? of the, I, I want to dive back into that. But one of the things that interested me, and I, I don't know if you know this about Chicago, we actually have a large Korean American diaspora here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they
4: actually talk. She actually mentions, uh, I, I believe, it's your mother, or not your the character's mother's funeral that. Relatives came in from Chicago.
2: Yeah. yeah. We,
3: yeah my uh, my dad's family, um, which came here before my mom's family did, uh, my dad's family immigrated to Chicago uh, um, over 50 years ago, just yeah. over 50 years ago.
2: It's interesting because we, we happen to be sitting in a neighborhood um, with uh, a great many uh, Chinese-Americans and Korean-Americans, and it's interesting. The people, the family that uh, owns the building that we're in are also Korean-Americans. So it was interesting for me to read your book because you started talking about some things that I, I, actually honestly hadn't thought about. My my family also emigrated to America, but they emigrated from Britain, and uh, they all spoke English. And you know, our our buddy Eddie, who um, runs this station, and I, I actually work for him. Um, his mom emigrated uh, during uh, just after the Korean War, and spoke no English at all. And I was reading your you know your story of Grace telling the story of her mom Yvonne, and it struck me that those are kind of things that I had never really. Thought about, you know what I mean? So I was really mm-hmm. pleased that you brought them up, and and uh, that I was able to kind of you know reference those and start thinking about some of our close friends in
1: that way. There was a lot of that in this book, yeah, from multiple angles. Well, yeah.
4: I th- another thing too that I wanted to bring up is that you know I was 21 when this happened, 22. I was actually in the army when this happened, and there was actually talk that we could possibly get deployed to LA during the rioting That's bef- correct, at yeah. the beginning. Yeah, but. Oh, wow. but one of your characters, I'm terrible remembering, character's name said, though, in the book, uh, if Rodney King happened today, no one would care because we're, we're so used to seeing these things happen all the time. And for a lot of our listeners, and I, it, Jamie and I are, are the same age. We're often fascinated that people aren't really familiar with some of the like the right. history that was prevalent in our time.
2: Yeah, Rodney King. I don't think uh, means much to people nowadays. And of course, it was a major story when you and I were.
4: I mean, it was huge. Yeah, it, it, and this was.
1: Yeah, in, De- in Detroit too, Melis Green. You remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. That was around the same time. That yeah. was a terrible, terrible um, thing too. And it was,
2: you know, MTV actually was one of the things. You know, that was when um, they were a pretty popular uh, network. They had wall-to-wall coverage of the Rodney King stuff, and that was one of the first times that you saw. Um, news media really talking to a specific age group, you know, younger people, and and talking about the injustices of the King case. And you you said you were about five or six when the King uh, case happened?
3: Yeah, I was born in 86, so I
1: was five. Well, that's a great way to segue what you were talking about, Jeremy, the younger generation talking about one of the main characters, Grace, in the book. She's She really doesn't know much of any of the history or even what's going on in her present day, so... The book pans back and forth between 91 and 2019. Yeah. And and Grace is, I don't know, in her 20s? Yeah, 28.
2: 27.
4: 27,
1: yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Working at a pharmacy, working at her parents' uh,
4: pharmacy. Well, one of the the things that I thought was very, I don't want to say fascinating, one of the strengths I thought in your book was Grace's character, and there was a a moment in the novel when she's pushed – by a kind of a tabloid blogger, um, not pushed physically, but she, he was trying to get some quotes from her and she trips and fell and she said something um well I guess I should rewind a little bit. Grace is unaware that her mother shot and killed a young black woman in the nineties. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoil well, I mean it's it's <laughs> we, not we, like yeah. you gotta know you, I got, talked you, about ha- without. you <laughs> have to know that to get through the novel. Yeah. yeah. Um and and she trips and falls and she says you know that you know this woman this girl was so much bigger than her mother i think she said she was shack like and she called her a savage i think a savage and it turns into this huge you know the thousands of people are reading she's racist and i i find that what i thought was that's really uh prevalent in <clears throat> this time because a lot of times p- things are taken out of context and They'll show like somebody saying something, and then they don't show the whole thing. They, particularly with, uh, I've noticed with the right wing, they'll like they'll take like little bits of something a politician says, but not give the whole background and the story. And it it says a lot about the information that we consume in this era. It it, it can be really uh, frustrating sometimes.
1: Not only that, what was really impressive to me about it was was her character, what she, what she went through. I mean, that Grace was so real to me. Um, I was I felt like that when I was you know ten fifteen years ago. I know a lot of people who are like that. And what we're taken through is is a kind of awakening for for Grace. And she, she's because she's ignorant to a lot of the issues. She she's acting out on raw emotion in that in that moment, in confusion, and it's the aftermath that she has to wade through. And you see her struggle with. Um, she's attacked left and right by. Controllers, I don't know, whatever you yeah, call them, yeah. and she has to work all this out internally well, while while she's being slammed publicly before she's understood it all.
3: I yeah, and, and and that's and that's something that I wanted to deal with, you know, because she's somebody who you know I have a lot of sympathy for her, but I needed I I wanted to put her in a place where like she does say stuff that is like pretty hard to swallow, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but it. But for me, it came from a place that was, um, you know, she's defending her mom. Yeah. And so she has to do this thing where she is processing um, what her mother has done, um, which is in conflict with the things that she already believes, but that, she, you know, she doesn't have, like, the strong foundation of, like, understanding the the kind of context of American racism and the political moment. Uh, you know, she's somebody who has kind of been able to bumble along in her own bubble without really confronting these things in any meaningful way, thinking that they have very little to do with her. You know, and I think, and I think, a, lot of, and I think a lot of people are in this, in this boat. You know, I, I, I live in L.A. where most people are not conservative, but where there are plenty of people who don't really think about politics in a deep way and just keep, keep it at arm's distance and think these are things that happen in the news. These are not things that affect my life. You know, and so I wanted to write about I wanted to write about a character who um who thinks that this has nothing to do with her and who it turns out, you know, is very much part of part of this conversation and part of this history in a way that in a way that all of us are, you know. I think I think there is this um this choice that a lot of people make to be a political. Um but that that in, that is in itself a political choice, you know. So I was thinking a lot when I was writing this book about the the um the way that we inherit wrongdoing, the way that we inherit our um uh, our parents our parents sins but also the sins of our ancestors and of this country, you know, even like even the immigrants come in and um and they come, they don't come in clean because when you come to America and when you become American um you inherit American history in a way that if you don't understand, uh, then you become complicit in, um, in the power structures that preexisted you. Um, and I think that is something that happened with the Korean, communi- the Korean immigrant community. Um, and, and Grace becomes a, p- a part of this um, and has to kind of work it out um, in front of people, which is an ugly process that I think that nobody would want to go through publicly.
4: And it is an ugly process, and I think people do sometimes, and that's why I thought that the that when she was dealing with that, it was extraordinarily powerful. It, it's weird because pop culture is what it, well, obviously the rioting and the, and then pop culture. I, one of the things that I in the, at an early age learned about the the tension between the Korean and African American population in L.A. was Ice Cube that song "Black Korea." Yes. I
3: don't
4: I don't know if you're familiar with that one. that came that out. Was, that
3: was the working title of this book for. Like the oh, year. Okay. Oh, there you go. <laughs>
2: and are Alice? you an Ice Cube fan?
3: Uh, I mean, I am. Um, in part though, because um, because of what he means for LA, and I kind of listened to a lot of Ice Cube as I was writing this book. I actually, I was hoping to have an Ice Cube lyric become the title of the book. Nothing quite worked. Um, the the actual title comes from a Toddy T song. Um, he w- he was is uh, um, a rapper from the um he was. More
4: prominent in the '80s, but he was from LA, also. I'm a big Ice Cube fan, up to Predator, but after that and his Disney huh. days, I'm uh, not really my thing. And of course, N.W.A. is one of my favorite bands of all time. But on that note, that was the when I started Ray. I'm like, oh my god, this is Black Korea. <laughs> you know. So I, I mm-hmm. guess I interpreted that right. But let's go from Grace to Miriam. So we have Grace, who's this very. She's very sheltered. I think, it, yeah, very sheltered and, and
2: ignorant. Kind of of the the thing that's kind of at the heart of her. There, there's there's something at the heart of her family that's wrong, and no one will talk to her about it.
4: And and she's mm-hmm. also like the stereotype of like the model immigrant, or the, you know the the
2: model first generation yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah
4: she lives at home. She yeah, she still, she and lives and at home. she's still. I'm saying stereotype. At just please don't. I'm not agreeing with it, but it's a stereotype. And then, not, then we have Miriam, who on the other side is has wants nothing to do with, and I think—
1: This is Grace's older sister. Yeah, Miriam, yeah.
4: Yes, and I think what you were just talking about, what Grace went through and the history and everything, Miriam was kind of the opposite of that, where she didn't really want anything to do with it um, across the board, and including—I mean, she did cut her mother out and father— but she was across the board. She didn't seem very political, nor that interested in what was going on after the fact.
3: Well, I I, I think actually Miriam is somebody who, um, you know, she's she's another she's she is in a way too. She's also a model minority. You know, she went to an Ivy League school, um, where, whereas Grace didn't. Grace stayed Grace stayed local. She stayed close to home. You know, um, the, you know, and the two sisters. I mean, I mean, honestly, they're like both of them take parts of them from, you know, people I've been, you know. I think, like, part of me wonders if I had stayed, if, if I, if, you know, if I had stayed in L.A. going to Korean church and, you know, mostly hanging out with Korean people, hanging out with my parents a lot, you know, I'd, I'd be a different person. I don't know, I, I don't know that I'd be that sheltered, but, um, you know, Miriam is somebody who left home, you know, and she is, and she is engaged in the current political moment in a way that Grace is not, you know, in the... In the beginning, we see them uh, k- kind of participating in uh, in a uh, Black Lives Matter to- sort of sort of um, rally that uh, that Miriam kind of strong arms mm-hmm. Grace into going to, uh, and and the, and Miriam I think is probably somebody who would be more recognizable to readers who um, who spend a lot of time on social media. You know, she's she's pretty plugged in. You know, she is um, she has like she's kind of a writer in the way that like people are kind of writers um, in Los Angeles. She is active on Twitter. She has a boyfriend who's a screenwriter. You know, they're they're kind of this hipster activist couple um, who kind, live kind in of know Silver what's Lake. going on.
4: Yeah. yeah, they
3: live in Silver Lake. Uh, she, you know, and Miriam is um, you know she's 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 easy to kind of make fun of uh, in in part because there's so much of me and her that like as a writer it's like it's it's uh kind of fun to separate that out and look at it um because you know there is something there is there's something a little bit inherently d- ridiculous about being very activist from a position of privilege and that's something that i feel very strongly about myself too um but well, that's
4: that's kind of where i was coming from too because i don't think twitter activism and yelling at rallies is really activism in my opinion, I mean, anyone can go online and yell their opinions on Twitter. I mean, we have a president that does it 100 times a day. And this kind of, like you said, hipster privileged uh, activism sometimes can feel really phony to me. And that's why I was when looking at the character of Miriam. It's just, I think, and, and I'm not comparing, I know you said part of this is you and I don't know you at all. But a lot of times people just do those kind of things because they're supposed to. And that's the way I interpreted it. But of course... Everyone has different. Well, interpretations. we
1: also we also find out some of Miriam's motives. Yeah, later on, yes. later on. yeah, we do.
3: Yeah, I think I think I think for her too. It's um, I don't know because this is something that I go back and forth on, or, or I don't even go back and forth on it actually. The way that I see it is that um, yeah, there is something ridiculous about what what is commonly called selectivism. You know, it's it's easy to kind of be behind your computer screen and and sound off, uh, but on the other hand. I think that as a whole, having um, having kind of my generation be engaged in this way, and the gen- and the generation behind us also kind of engaged in this way, has made it so that it's it's harder to be a young person now, at least in a city. Uh, you know, who um, who has no idea what's going on in the world. You know, I feel like that was a very easy thing to grow up as. Um, you know, I feel like when I was in high school and even in college, like. I wasn't really thinking about these things in the same way as as, um, as my younger brother, who's twelve years younger than me, was. And I think part of it is that um, is that paying attention to what's going on in the country, um, even if it's in this minimally engaged way, um, has made it so that people are are more aware of uh, of what's out there, you know. And that's not happening to them necessarily, but that affects tons of people and so i think i think even if even if um you know it's easy to find individual tweeters or whatever ridiculous there is this there is this the the alternative to me sometimes feels like it might just be apathy and and i think you know miriam and grace um like going into the events of this book were uh, kind of represented that the two sides of that um where, uh, you know, you have this, you, you have one sister who is doing what she can, and e- even though it's a little bit silly sometimes, and then you have the other one who is, kinda, is just kind of distant and apathetic, and I don't think either of those is, is like, heroic, but it's, uh, they represent kind of different modes of engaging or not engaging with the, with the events of the world.
2: You know, we're going to. This is a good place to actually play something from your book. And as always, our readings are done by Shanna Van Volt. Uh, we're actually going to hear a reading from some of the characters we haven't talked about. One of the characters is getting out of prison. So this is the first reading from, um, oh, it's about uh, two or three chapters in, where Ray is getting out of prison and he's going to return to a family that, that barely knows him. And, of course, we're speaking with the author, Steph Cha. This is a selection from her book, Your House Will Pay. Steph, we'll be back with you in about two minutes. We're going to play this segment, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit, okay? Okay. Okay.
0: Dasha held a balloon the size of her torso. It shone in the sunlight, rainbow letters spelling WELCOME HOME on a background of silvery blue. She'd picked it and paid for it herself out of her weekly allowance, and she'd insisted on bringing it to Lompoc instead of leaving it back at the house with the cake and the rest of the party. Sean saw now why it was worth the trouble. With the balloon and her butter-yellow sundress, she'd be the first sight Ray would see as a free man. Daryl stood next to her, spit-sweating in the button-down shirt Aunt Sheila had forced him to wear. The tie he'd loosened on the drive, then taken off altogether. Sean would help him knot it again later, or Ray, if he remembered how. The boy plucked the balloon from the air and flapped it between him and his sister back and forth like a folding fan. It squeaked against his fingers and she started to protest, clutching the slack string ribbon. She gave up and leaned closer instead on the off chance it stirred up a breeze. They looked like praying angels, thought Sean, their heads together, waiting for their father. All around them was concrete and chain link, grim gray spruced up with patches of dying grass. Beyond the parking lot lay the stark, mute buildings that made up the federal prison where Ray had spent the last ten years. Finally, a door opened in one of the fenced-off buildings, and a man came out alone, carrying a cardboard box. His face turned up and out. "'It's him,' said Nisha, standing on her toes. "'It's him!' she waved her arms and shouted, "'Ray!' He saw them and smiled. Stood taller, walked faster, it was Ray, all right. and for a moment the sight of him stunned Sean into something like disbelief. His cousin was wearing a brand new shirt and smart dark jeans. Nisha had sent the dress-out clothes a month ago. Ray had been vain about his clothes once upon a time, and it was strange to see him in normal gear again. He seemed to shimmer like a mirage diligently imagined. But he was there in the flesh, and the flesh, Sean saw, had aged. Not since the last time he'd seen him, just a few months earlier but since the last time he'd seen him free. It was obvious outside the timeless space of the visiting room. Gray was a 44-year-old man, the end scraps of his youth left behind in an overcrowded cell. There was gray in his hair and his body was lean without its former wiry hardness. The tattoos on his forearm had a soft worn-in look and black ink washed to a smudgy green. Daryl and Dasha in large graphic fonts surrounded by patterns and symbols in a dense thorny thicket. Nisha got a spot on his chest, Sean remembered. Lanisha over Ray's heart before they were even married a rash late night decision that had panned out in spite of it all and on his right bicep another tribute Ava Sean had the same name on the same place they'd gotten it done together their friend Trammell inking it in the year Sean turned 14 he'd done their backs too the name of their set Baron Cross laid out in a crucifix crossing at the R Sean felt the words glow warm against his skin it was surreal seeing Ray free again exhilarating and joyful Yet it came with a heightened awareness of all that had brought them here, the past clinging to them in thin, sticky layers. The kids pulled him out of his daze, back into the dazzling present. Daddy! Dasha leaped up, springing forward and running to meet him as he came out of the fence gate. Daryl and Nisha followed after her, their eyes shining as they waited their turns. Sean hung back and took pictures on his cell phone, knowing they'd want them later. Ray put the box down and hugged his daughter tight, sinking his face into her shoulder. Sean could see his eyes closed and tears darkening the yellow fabric of her dress. Thank God, Ray said, nodding his head as he held her. Thank you, God, for this day. Hey, Dad, said Daryl with a shy little wave. He was 16 and Sean knew that lately he fancied himself a man.
2: And that is a selection from Steph Chaz. Your house will pay. Read, as always, by Shannon Ben Volt. We do want to thank uh, Jamie Branch. She's on International Anthem Records. The trumpeter providing the background music for that. We haven't we haven't talked about this set of characters, Steph, uh, and. Uh, it's an interesting group. Ray is just, as you heard in that reading, Ray is just getting out of prison. He's meeting a family that he hasn't seen for ten years, and uh, I think it's safe to say, without spoilers, that problems lie ahead for uh, this group of people. Steph, can you talk a little bit about this group and uh, what did, did you base them on? People that you knew, or is is this just kind of was this the other side of the coin to Grace and Miriam?
3: Um, so the Matthews Holloway family uh, is, you know, I did not base them on um, real people to uh, to a uh, strong extent. Um, Aunt Sheila is the one who's kind of the matriarch of the family, who uh, raised both, both Sean, who is the point-of-view main character, right. and Ray, his cousin, um, Aunt, Sheila's daughter, uh, Aunt Sheila's son, and Ava, who is Sean's sister, who was... Um, who was uh, murdered at sixteen in 1991? Um, aunt Sheila is based loosely on um, on Latasha Hollins's aunt right. um, Denise Hollins, who was um, a woman who became an activist after uh, after her niece's death. Um, and she actually she passed away uh, at the end of 2018. Um, I, I had hoped to meet her. I had seen her speak. So I I used. Some of the elements of her public persona um, for Aunt Sheila, and then um, and then you know Sean Sh- and Ray and the rest of them you know like all of my characters they have they, they have characteristics of me and of people that I know um, but they weren't based on specific people.
2: Okay. Uh, and, of course, for those of the people that don't know, um, and I, I don't think people necessarily would know it because Latasha Harlan's case wasn't really widely known outside of L.A. She was shot at a, uh, if I remember correctly, a liquor store in uh, Delhi by the owner who accused her of stealing. And then um, the owner, if I remember, was convicted but didn't go to jail. Am I correct on those facts?
3: Yeah, that's right. She was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, uh, but the, the judge felt sorry for her, and she... Um, Made the extraordinary decision to sentence her to no jail time, even though the recommended sentence for vol- voluntary manslaughter would have been something like 15 years. Um, no. I think that would have, you know, that would have been that would have been an appropriate sentence. Um, you know, because the jury did their job. I don't think that this was. She shot she shot Latasha in the back of the head uh, after they had this altercation over uh, over a, a bottle of orange juice. Right. Um, latasha very famously died with two dollars held in her hand um, that she was going to use to pay for the juice um, but she she was shot in the back of the head the shooting was caught on on video so that surveillance footage was actually also played along with the run the footage of the Rodney King beating and you know I think at the time it was national news I think a lot uh, that has not stayed in, um, in the public discourse in the same way as the Rodney King beating. Right. Uh, but it was, but it was considered, um, a, one of the factors of, uh, that led to the L.A. uprising and also one that accounted for the large percentage of Korean businesses that were targeted during the rioting. Yes.
4: Um,
3: uh, because there was this kind of flashpoint for these tensions between, um, between the black and Korean communities, you know, um. Uh, the uh, two-thirds of the businesses in uh, South Central were Korean-owned um, in the early 90s, and um, there were a lot of just uh, cultural and racial tensions between the two groups. You know, um, a lot of Korean business owners uh, were not necessarily super respectful to uh, to their customers who, who tended to be mostly black, and they didn't live in the neighborhood, and they didn't really hire from the neighborhood, and so... Um, that there was a lot of tension, and when this shooting happened, um, that became this real flashpoint.
4: I have a. Did you get any flack for writing from the point of view of gangbangers from anyone? I was just curious.
3: Um, I haven't gotten very much flack. Um, you know, I, it's something that I um, thought a lot about as I was writing about it because, um, you know, and, and I and I and I and i talked to i talked to friends um while i was writing the book um, you know i remember having having a conversation with uh, one of my best friends who's a black woman who said that you know she 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 is always a little bit wary of reading about you know black people who are ex-cons or have been to present because you know she she feels like she'd rather read about black people who are successful um and and i and i totally and i totally knew that Knew that kind of going in that I would have. To, this is something that I would have to um, think about very in a pretty deep way um, and consider why I was doing what I was doing. So um, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't really gotten much pushback from uh, people who have read the book, um, or and I haven't. You know, it's it's something that it's it's actually something that I thought I might get more pushback for. You know, um, but I also thought it it just. It just made sense for Sean and Ray to have spent some time in prison, because, in part, because um, one of the salient things about this case is that um, Sinjado, the 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 real shooter of Latasha Harlan, you know, she she murdered she murdered a 15 year old black girl, and she didn't spend a day she she didn't go to jail, yeah. she didn't go to prison at all, and um, you know, and this was during a time when um, when and and this was during a time of like. There was a lot. There was a lot of crime in South Central, and um, there was a ton of gang activity. And so, a lot of the people who um, who would have interacted with Sinjaju, um a lot of young black men, would have ended up in in jail and in prison for extended periods of time for much for for much smaller infractions. And um, you know, that was one thing that I wanted to call attention to. That this is these are these are two men who uh, who have been victims of a crime uh that is worse than anything that they've committed um you know what like right when gay ray gets out of prison it's um he has spent 10 years in in um, federal prison because of a because of a failed stupid bank robbery with a fake gun and you you know it, that's a harsh sentence um that's 10 years of his life uh that that are gone now because he he uh, did something stupid, and the reason that he was even in that position in the first place is because he'd spent a little time in in prison because he had been in the gang as as um as you know a lot of a lot of young black boys uh, from that time period and from those neighborhoods um, in L A like would have ended up in gangs, and I think having this traumatic thing happen to them. During this time of great upheaval in LA and in their families, I, it just felt realistic and natural to me that these boys who were not inclined towards violence, um, you know, ended up finding finding a tribe among um, among people who probably did did great violence. And um, so, I wanted to write about that how they they kind of became ensnared in this cycle of violence and this uh, and criminality, um, in part by in part. Because um, because somebody else killed somebody who was dear to them, and um, really suffered no consequences for it that were that were legal at least.
2: Yeah, we need to take a break and remind folks uh, of the people that help support this station. We're speaking with Steph Cha. She is the author of the new book Your House Will Pay. It's out now from Echo. Steph, you're going to hang around with us for another about half an hour or so and talk a little more. Yeah We really appreciate it So we're going to play Some uh, underwriting And then we're going to Come back with actually Another reading from your book And then we're going to Discuss a bunch of other stuff Once again You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM This is Lumpen Radio
0: If you enjoy listening To I-94 And other programs Like this on Lumpen Radio Please consider Becoming a member today More information Is at Lumpenradio.com And now back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. His phone alarm went off at six, and Sean thought about calling in sick for the first time in years. He'd stayed up drinking with Ray until just over three hours earlier, when Ray had nodded off in the middle of his 15th toast to Ava and Zhang Jia Han's shooter. Instead of knocking Sean out, the alcohol seemed to swarm in his veins and keep his body buzzing. He must have fallen asleep somewhere along the way, but he only knew it by the pain of waking up. He shouldn't have given in to Ray's goading. Ray could afford to indulge his sentimentality. He had nowhere to be in the morning. Sean turned his alarm off and rolled back deep into his bed, grabbing for another quarter hour of sleep. After a minute, he gave up. His mind was too active, too glutted with old memories. When he opened his eyes, they were sore and parched, but fully alert. He checked his email out of habit and saw that his inbox was jammed with notes and inquiries from his friends and strangers. The word had spread overnight. When he searched the internet for Jung Jia Han, he found her name mentioned several times on Twitter, but no news story since yesterday. One of the tweets linked to an LA Times story posted late last night. It was light on details, but it, re- it, was light on details, but it reported an early evening shooting outside the Hanin Market in Northridge, the victim in critical condition. He put his phone away, got ready for work, and kissed Jazz and Monique goodbye. It was only as he entered Northridge in his Manny Movers t-shirt and basketball shorts that he knew he'd been fooling himself about going in today. The Hannon Market was only a mile and a half from Manny's. He knew she wouldn't be there and that the store would be closed even without the shooting. It was still just after 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning. But he had to see it for himself, the place where Zhang Han had hidden in the open all these years. He called Manny and left a message, said he had a family emergency and had to miss work today. Manny would cut him the slack, Sean never pulled any bull, and his boss knew it. Even today, he would have gone in if he couldn't be spared, but Sean had been heading a three-man team since Ray quit, and he trusted Ulysses and Marco could handle a move on their own. The streets were wide and empty this early, and Sean decelerated as he came upon a stretch of strip malls studded with signs written in Korean script. He recognized the foreign alphabet, less crowded than Chinese, softer and loopier than Japanese, with those dangling O's. It had been a while since he'd seen it. There wasn't much need for it in Palmdale, where the only Koreans he ever knew about ran the all-you-can-eat sushi joint. There weren't many Japanese people, either. He'd probably driven through this area before, but hadn't had reason to stop. He hadn't realized there was this suburban Korea town just five-minute drive from Manny's office. He turned into an enormous strip mall, the vast lot mostly empty, the businesses closed. The Hannon Market sat at the center of a long row of storefronts, all facing out from the same sand-colored box of the building. It was a huge complex with a tired suburban feel, the businesses listed on a large grimy directory, its doll lettering visible from Sean's car, a Starbucks, a realtor, honey-baked ham, a Korean school and several after-school programs, music and art and SAT prep, a small town's worth of services, all of it seeming to flow from the market, a food court and a nail salon, an optometrist and a dentist, a drugstore called Wuri Pharmacy. He parked the car and hesitated before turning off the engine and stepping out. Was this really it? There were no cops, no cameras, no crime scene tape. A few cars in the lot, people early to work, he assumed, none of them out here gawking. This didn't feel like a place where something big had just happened. Maybe 12 hours was all it took to clean up and start forgetting. Yet he felt a nagging need to be furtive, like he was returning to the scene of his own crime. He looked around, nothing alarming, but maybe this was a bad idea. What was he getting out of it?
2: Welcome back to another edition of I-94, right here on Lumpin' Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack.
1: Good almost afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Yes, on this fine, cold, frigid day. That was a selection from the novelist Steph Cha from her new book, Your House Will Pay, out now from Echo. And we are speaking to her through the magic of the phone from Los Angeles. How are you doing, Steph? Hi,
3: I'm doing great.
2: Good. Hey, you know, before we get back into that, um, that reading... Uh, I have been dying to ask you this since the review started, since this interview started, so I'm just going to jump in here. You also uh, hold a, a peculiar distinction in that you are an elite reviewer for Yelp. Yeah. I and <laughs> and uh, I know that you used to, uh, I believe you collaborated in the Scout for uh, the late Jonathan Gold from the LA Times. Yes. Right, yeah. So uh, I, I found that fascinating and amusing um can you talk a little bit about that part of your life because uh i i have a i should just say this up front i have a very difficult relationship with social media i try never to use it and this is partly because of my old job i used to work at fox sports and they forced us to be on twitter and uh facebook and insta spam yeah. and all this stuff that i i f- I just can't do. I find it very strange. Now, I, I am a guy in my 50s, so please take this with a grain of salt. But can you tell me, what is it about Yelp uh, that draws you to it as a medium to work in? Because I, I do find it fascinating, and I, I did happen to look at your Yelp page, and I'm like, man, this she really goes deep on this stuff. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so what's going on?
2: Yeah, it's
3: interesting that you talk about it as social media, because it is social media, but it's not. that's actually not how I approach Yelp. You know, I think of social media as Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, and, and you know, which also shows my age because I'm not—I I don't understand the things that I'm after. Um, but um, you know, I'm I'm active on Twitter, but not really on Instagram or Facebook. And Yelp is something I'm very active on, but I don't—I don't, I don't really—I and I have Yelp friends. They're just people who add me, but um, I—but the way I approach Yelp is I write the reviews and I leave. Um, and that has, I started doing the reviews in late 2008. So it's been 11, over 11 years now where I've been writing Yelp reviews most. Most days of my life, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I think I'm approaching three thousand eight hundred reviews now. Oh my lord! <laughs> 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 it's millions. It's, it's millions of words.
1: That's it, like it, a year uh, of your life. Is Yelp all businesses or is it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah, so yeah wait a, a minute.
2: Businesses. So you've written more words for Yelp than you have in your books?
3: Oh, absolutely. It is. Um, it is the largest piece of my body of work. Um, it's, but it's, uh, and it's. Nobody asked me to do them, um, and I can stop whenever I want. Oh, that's um, what that's what all and,
2: users say. Oh, I know. Yeah.
3: But you know, here but, on this
2: show, the friends of Bill know that one well. <laughs> <laughs> but
3: technically, but technically, you know, I, I write them, you know, of my own volition, and nobody's waiting around for them. I don't share them. Really, they just are out there. But you know, I I was never able to successfully maintain a blog. Which in twenty eleven, when I sold my first book, you know, um, I was encouraged to have a blog, and I had one for a little bit. And just kind of, I wrote five posts, then it kind of fizzled out. Um, But Yelp is a way for me to to be writing every day, and um, and it kind of, you know, the 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 subject matter is self generative, so I don't really have to think about it too deeply. But it is something that um, you know I started writing in late two thousand eight, which was just a few months after I started writing my first novel, and so I think in a way, Yelp is a medium that has helped me kind of beat out my voice by writing just millions of words, Um, you know, (laughs) and it's really low stakes, and it's easy for me to do, and it's kind of fun, although it is at this point this massive compulsion and burden that will follow me around until I die, because (laughs) now I can't stop doing it, because it will be abandoning this project that I have had going for my entire writing career. Um, and, yeah, so I Yelp pretty much every business that I have, uh, that I walk into, including things like rest stops. Oh, I've noticed. oh
2: carts, yeah, i noticed. Public park. Yeah, I know, which aren't even
3: a business. <laughs> if you can Yelp, if there's something that, like, can plausibly have a Yelp page and I have been there, I have probably Yelped it.
2: So, I... W- And we're going to get back to your book in a second. But I was talking with a friend of mine, actually, who is also a Korean-American who lives in L.A. And um, she happens to be a screenwriter. And she was like, you know, you really should ask her if she goes to the Yelp Elite meetups. Because I guess (laughs) Yelp has, like, elite reviewer meetups. And she was like, you know, I know the story of somebody who met their husband. They were both elite reviewers. (laughs) So I I had Alyssa Lee, this is the question for you, to Steph Chop. So... Do you you go to, is there like a Yelp
3: secret club that you guys go to or something? There are uh, Yelp elite events and I have been to a handful of them over the years. I don't really go anymore unless unless the event is like, we're going to pay for your dinner at like a really nice restaurant. Um, And I I will go to those occasionally. But usually I don't go because um, it, I don't know, it ends up being like, I don't know anybody, and uh, and actually, I uh, was surprised to see. I went to the last one I went to was um, for people who had been elite Yelpers for ten years or mm-hmm. more. So mm-hmm. it was a group of like forty people at uh, at Major Domo, which is like a nice restaurant in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, that was at the time like a hard table to get to. So I went to that, and I was so surprised that I was the only person who wrote professionally in this group. These mm-hmm. are you know, all people who have been like writing on this website for for at least a decade. Um, you know, but I don't. Yeah, I don't usually go. I did when when I was um, when I was in my early twenties. I met um, I met someone I dated for a little bit on Yelp, and uh, he was great. Uh, there we go. <laughs> um, we met at a Yelp event at like an art gallery. Okay.
2: Well, I, uh, th- thank you for answering that question for my friend. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Yeah, we, we have
4: a tendency to uh, get off track, and here's one more off track. On- <laughs> i am a former basset hound owner and her name was, oh her name was dolomite and oh my god basset hound owners generally give their dogs awesome names so can you just tell us what your bassets names are
3: oh i hate to disappoint but uh my bassets are both rescues who came with their names and so uh, we kept them uh, but their names are duke and milo which are very good no those names. are good They're I mean, solid do
1: they have really gnarly teeth jeremy's Dolomite had the most ridiculous set of crooked teeth.
4: Yeah, she she lost her front teeth. We used to call her a hockey player. Oh, my gosh. And she was also um, super aggressive. She got in tons oh, of wow. fights. That's unusual for <laughs> a bass hound. That's
3: very unusual for a bass and hound. Yeah. Um, I would not say that the teeth are the most salient characteristic of my bass and hounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stinky ears. And they're not aggressive, but uh, they're, they're, they're good boys. I mean, they're very silly. I think, um, I, I, I don't just, I don't just have Basset Hounds. I'm kind of obsessed with a breed. Um, our, for my 30th birthday party, we turned, we turned our place into a Basset Hound museum where we displayed (laughs) Basset Hound art. And, um, I cut out museum style labels and, uh, we, we had a party that was like a museum opening and it just displayed all of the like weird Basset Hound kish that we've accumulated over the years. Um, and we probably will have basset hounds until until we die, uh, and probably two at a time.
4: There, uh, there's a basset waddle in Birmingham, Michigan, every year where the Michigan Basset Hound Rescue has a parade that I've attended. In the year I went, there were a thousand of them, and it was uh, oh my and, god! And, and, <laughs> and you, they had a horse drawn king and queen basset hound in a carriage. Wait, with- what? Yeah, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and you line up, and it, you know, it was a thousand people, and then you know various businesses. Wait, was, what? Yeah. There was a thousand people? Arbol- there were a thousand dogs, so I don't know how many people there. There were so <laughs> many people. But you line up, and it's like a mile of people with basset hounds, and then the, the carriage goes, and it's so weird. It's like they all know, and they all start marching at once, and it's like this parade of basset hounds. So... <laughs> It's our amazing.
3: rescue, our rescue has an annual um, spring games, which are uh, like the hound <laughs> Olympics. They're not; they, they're they're never a thousand hounds, but uh, they're usually about a hundred. And we meet in a public park, and there are uh, there are games like there's a, a kissing contest and a, a
0: oh.
3: and a howling contest and um, and various other uh, feats of strength on the part of the hounds.
4: Um. <laughs> yeah it's a very bizarre subculture i had to I had to ask but i guess we can get back into the yeah, book
2: yeah i mean now. we may can talk to that we've talked now about yelp and basset hounds now for a good 20 minutes which is which is great i i unfortunately i'm the cat person in the group here uh so i, I feel a little left out but uh uh get, getting back to your to your book um and i do you know i should ask um are you are, are you going to continue your crime series as well by the way because this is your first non like It is a crime story in a sense, Uh, and I I felt, and I mean this as a compliment by the way, the reading of it was very smooth in that kind of frictionless way that that, um, takes a lot of effort, uh, but actually I think f- from the reader's point of view seems effortless, but it's actually a very hard thing to do. It's
4: Especially tying in all the characters. Yeah, games.
2: writing action is very hard, you know what I mean? And I, I think you did an excellent job of getting the characters moving from, from place A to place B to place C. Uh, and and the, the mechanics of your story, um, you know, speaking as a technical thing, I, I didn't see any of the seams, you know what I mean? I, I, I really appreciated yeah, yeah, how yeah. – you were able to keep things propelling and you hit all the beats at the right point that that's very difficult to do it perspective too yes and i i wondered how much uh, it it really felt like somebody who had that kind of crime novel background because candidly in those books and in in a lot of genre fiction that is the one thing you really need to do because otherwise the whole project falls apart so i wondered if you're going to kind of keep focusing on crime books or, or what your next steps are too
3: yeah, um, and thank you very much because um, I d- that is that is the um, that's the type of novel that I, I aspire to write. You know, something that it does take a lot of work to write something that you, that reads smoothly, um, and and I actually find that a lot of novels, uh, both within and without, uh, it, it, both in and out of the crime genre, you know, even even when uh, the prose is the prose is fast, it, it it stops me sometimes if it feels a little bit like. Too lazily done,
2: absolutely, but, um, and it'll break you but, out of the reverie too. If 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 you hit a stop yeah. point like that, especially in a genre novel, it can blow the entire book up.
3: Yeah, but I, I think um, I you know I, so I wrote those three PI novels. So the way I consider it, I consider this book a crime novel also, but it's just a different kind of crime novel. It's more it's more of a social crime novel or a literary crime novel, you know. But the other books are straight mysteries, um, and I, I don't know if I'll go back to that series. Um, if I do, it won't be for a long time. If I thought of another book that I wanted to write that was a PI, that was best told through that point of view of a private investigator, then I might resurrect her. Um, but I kind of like this part of the genre pool where I'm kind of somewhere in the middle between crime and literary fiction and um, like lingering in the effects of crime and the way that crime reveals things about. The society and the country that we live in. Um, I think those are the kinds of books that I want to p- kind of keep writing. I
1: think you found um, a sweet spot. Yeah. 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 You know, and I and, and a lot of
3: the writers I really admire kind of play in that territory. Who,
2: who is who? Who are those writers? Just real quick.
3: I mean, people like uh, Nina Revoir in LA oh. or Ivy Picota. Um, oh, of course, yeah, ivy
2: I've on ivy. the show. Yeah, Ivy's great.
3: Oh yeah, I I love her. She's also she's also um, a close friend of mine. Oh wonderful! Uh, Say hi to her for us, will you? Yeah, I will. Um, yeah, I love her books, and she has a new one coming out in May that I'm really looking forward to. Oh, we
2: better go um, back.
3: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, people like um, Jonathan Leatham and Richard Price, yep. mm-hmm. who, Richard you, Price. you know, I, I kind of like those authors um, and what they're able to do by kind of looking at crime and right. and um, telling us what you can see um, through that lens, um, and so that's, that's probably what I'll keep doing, because um, I, I just find crime so revelatory. I mean, it just tells you so much about a place and a time and also the people involved when you look at look at people doing the worst possible things they can to each other. Um, and you look at a society and you look at who's harming who and um, who's benefiting, who's losing, and you learn so much. Um, and so spending t- having spent a lot of time with these people in, uh, in my book, like, I think this is the angle that I want to approach at least my next book from.
4: Very cool. I wanted to just add one thing before we run out of time here, but the character development in this novel, there's a lot of characters, and I think what Jamie said earlier, it it was seamless. Like you just had enough information about a character. I I could picture Ray. I could picture Grace. I could picture the parents in my mind. So I had this – and I, I also think that's really hard to pull off. So kudos for that as well. Yeah, well, thank you.
2: Yeah, we only have about uh, two or three minutes left. This has actually flown by. Um, Steph, thank first of all, thank you so much for spending so much of your day with us. And, oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, this has been great. And uh, you know, we always try to give the authors the last word. So on our outro, we're gonna we'll play one more final reading from you. But I, I just wanted to to kind of end up here. Uh, did you? Did you accomplish what you set out to accomplish? Because you, I think you wanted to tell this kind of sweeping story about stuff that is very central to Los Angeles. And I think you were very good at making the city an integral part of that. It, the city felt like a character in this book as well, which uh, I think is pretty tough to pull off. But did you hit all the beats? Were there things that you, you wish you had done that you didn't do?
3: Um, there was... I, I, think I, I think I did everything ultimately that I wanted to do. There were some, the, the, the main difficulty of writing this novel uh, uh, from just from like a craft point of view is that I wanted to write this sweeping panoramic story that told you about the city and its, its history through the points of view of Grace and Sean who have very limited perspectives. Yeah. So you only get to see it through the eyes of these characters who, um, you know, one by choice you know grace in the beginning of the book is this very ignorant sheltered person and sean is somebody who's just exhausted and doesn't want to get involved for that reason and so and so they're very cloistered in their own family line and so you only get to see whatever pieces that they're sharing and so so i you know i didn't get to do all of the like kind of deep sociological analysis that i might have been able to do in essays or uh in a non-fiction treatment but um but I think I, I think I did I, I did get in the stuff that I wanted to get in there. And ultimately I just wanted this to be a book that showed um that showed what it means to be um to, to show on the ground level what these stories that we read about in the news are really like for the families, you know, and I wanted to I wanted to represent um the kind of drama of American justice on a on a human scale and um and and that was that that was my main goal, and I think I think that much I was able to do.
2: Awesome. Well, we've been speaking today with the author Steph Chaw from Los Angeles. Her new book, Her, "Your House Will Pay," is out now from Echo. Uh, Steph, you also have a website, right? Is it StephCha.com? dot com? Am I correct on that?
3: Yes, that's correct. Okay, so
2: you can get more information about Steph and her work there. You can; she's got four books out. Steph, I really appreciate thank you spending you, this, this, you, this cold uh, Sunday with us. We're going to uh, leave with another uh, excerpt from her latest book. As always, it is read by Shannon Van Volt. Thanks to her. Music by Jamie Branch. Thanks to her. Steph, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Uh, and thanks again for spending so much time with us.
3: Oh, you too. It's uh, It's been an uh, absolute
2: pleasure. Awesome, and you know, keep those Yelp reviews coming. okay guys hey Tope Fallorin is our next guest we'll see you next time here on I-94
0: it was a cool night and Sean felt the chill through his clothes like the bone wand desert moonlight was seeping in and coating his skin to leach the heat away Daryl was wearing jeans and a hoodie zipped all the way up to his chin it was his favorite hoodie green fleece with white lining and Sean saw that it was worn from washing Daryl had a backpack with him laid down at his feet, but Sean guessed he hadn't packed anything proper. How pathetic he was, this nephew of his, just a child run off from home. Sean hugged him and Daryl let him, waiting a full two seconds before slinking back into his swing. The boy needed a shower after two days stewing in his own teenage stink. You smell foul, said Sean. He lowered himself into the other swing. It creaked under his weight. Daryl laughed weakly. Where the hell have you been? Here, there, he said. Just driving around. You have been sleeping in your dad's car? Sleeping? I ain't been sleeping, Uncle Sean. The boy had to be exaggerating. It had been more than two days and Sean knew the dramatic tendency of teens. He'd had them too. Then again, his teen years were legitimately dramatic and so now were Daryl's. And whether he'd slept at all or not, his face showed the strains of insomnia, his eyes sunken, the skin of his cheeks plum purple in the dark. I drove up to Lompoc yesterday. You know your dad ain't at Lompoc, don't you? Yeah, I know. I just wanted to go up there. I never drove to visit him when he was in prison, not one time. You didn't even have your license. Still don't. I had my permit. He was wallowing now. Why aren't you home? You know what this is doing to your mom. I can't go home. What'd you call me for? He shook his head, hitting on the answer. You're out of gas. And money. Is that it? Daryl kicked the sand at his feet and nodded. So what? You think I'm gonna hand you over a few hundred bucks, no questions asked, and then you'll head over over to Mexico, send a postcard? I just... His voice caught as he tried to stop himself from crying. It'd be better for everyone if I was just gone. Stop that, said Sean. No matter what you did, that's not true. Daryl looked at him, stunned, like it hadn't occurred to him that his uncle could see through him. There was something so pure in this it made Sean want to hold him. Did you shoot Jung Ja Han? he asked instead. Daryl averted his eyes and Sean took him by the arm and made him look at him. The boy nodded and his face dissolved in an aching sob. Oh, Daryl. Sean rested his forehead against his nephews. He'd known for days, he realized, ever since Ray's confession, but it still struck him like a kick in the chest. How much time had he spent worrying about Daryl, about his attendance, his friends, the million ways things could go wrong, to have it go wrong like this? It broke Sean's heart. Why? he asked. I had to do something. About what? About Auntie Ava. Her name rang out between them. You didn't even know her. That's not the point, said Daryl, raising his voice. She was my blood. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every sunday at 11 a.m central this episode featured steph cha author of your house will pay out now from echo this episode originally aired on january 19, 2020 i-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by shanna van volt show intro and promo voiced by david green music by laurie johnson and bill bennett from the kpm archive for more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit LumpenRadio.com.